Warm greetings to our brethren around the world. We hope you're having a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles wherever you are at this year's feast. It is truly a spiritual highlight of the year, and we trust that you have been inspired and excited by hearing about Christ's return and his glorious coming reign on the earth. In this year's Feast film, we're going to explore how end-time prophecy has relevance to our lives personally and to us as a church. Why is prophecy important? Should we talk about prophecy? Is it relevant for the church today? And what is happening today that is of prophetic significance that we need to take notice of as commissioned watchmen at the end of the age? We hope to answer these questions and more as we present to you Festival 2019, Prophecy and Our End Time Commission. Welcome to this year's Feast Film. Our world is changing every year, every day, and nearly every moment. Technology leaps ahead on a daily basis, and mankind's capabilities appear almost limitless. Actions and technologies are considered normal in our society today that only a few years ago would have been viewed as impossible. Geopolitical alignments seem to be up for grabs as old alliances seemingly evaporate. The world seems to be turning faster every day and the signs that we are at the very end of the age are constantly more apparent. To help us make sense of it all and to explain the church's role in end time prophecy, we have with us three leading evangelists. Mr. Gerald Weston is the presiding evangelist of the Living Church of God. He's a Tomorrow's World telecast presenter and writer. Mr. Richard Ames 
is a Tomorrow's World magazine writer and telecast presenter and the Living Church of God director of media operations. And Dr. Douglas Winnale is a Tomorrow's World magazine writer and Living Church of God director of church administration. Gentlemen, it's a privilege to speak with you today and a wonderful opportunity to talk about a topic that I know is near and dear to your hearts and important to the commission of the church. It's also a privilege to have this conversation in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Mr. Weston, as we are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles around the world and celebrating the coming kingdom of God on the earth, we are here rejoicing before God. In doing that, why should we talk about Bible prophecy at the Feast of Tabernacles? Uh, You mentioned the coming kingdom of God. Uh, We look forward to God's government being set up here on this earth. How could we not speak of prophecy when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles? That's what what we're doing here. We are looking forward to a time in the future. Uh, All of God's holy days, whether it be the Sabbath or Passover or Pentecost, any of the holy days, are prophetic in nature, the very, very nature of them. The Feast of Trumpets, of course, has a lot of seemingly bad news, but the good news is that Christ comes back at the end of the day of the Lord. And so uh, those who eschew Bible prophecy, uh, how can they keep the, the feasts, any of these feasts, without uh, looking at it from a prophetic perspective? God had this plan even before time existed. That's here Second 2 Timothy uh, 1 and verse 9. He says, Who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our own work, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So God has revealed that whole plan of salvation through the annual festivals and the annual holy days. And uh, it's so exciting to have the big picture which Dr. Meredith used to use that expression. We need to have the big picture in mind. And the Feast of Tabernacles gives us a vision, a vision what is ahead for the future. And as Mr. Weston explained, that by nature is prophetic. You know, Jesus also said that we should live by every word of God. And the Bible is about one-third prophecy that talks about these things we've just been talking about here. I remember growing up in Protestant churches, and I think I heard one sermon in about 23 years that dealt with prophecy. Never talked about the holy days. I remember, I think, that one of the first times I heard about the plan of God was when I started attending the Worldwide Church of God. And the minister, during the days of, I think it was probably the Feast of Trumpets, he very briefly reviewed each one of the holy days and how that plan is pictured in those holy days. And after church, uh, an older gentleman standing behind me said, what do you think of that sermon? I said, he just blew my mind. I said, I've never heard anything like this. And it was exciting to realize that God has a plan, has a purpose, and as we keep the holy days, we're reminded of that plan. At the feast, we are rejoicing, and we are to rejoice before God. Uh, Some would say that Bible prophecy is something maybe we shouldn't talk about so much at the feast because isn't it about negative things? Isn't it about bad consequences? How would you respond to that question? Well, obviously, a prophecy is both a warning message and the good news. It's, It's a combination. And before you get the good news, you have to prepare for the calling that you've been given. 
And you talk about Matthew 25, for example, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. What are we looking forward to? The wedding with Christ. This parable is about the wedding, marrying Christ. Said five were foolish. Well, why were they foolish? Because they didn't have oil in their lamps and they weren't preparing for the wedding. And the Feast of Tabernacles gives us that vision. We have to prepare for the wedding with Christ and our calling to be a holy nation and a special people who are going to re-educate the world. We may be talking about that a little later. Uh, all the elements of the uh, millennium and the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's fulfilled in the millennium. So it's so exciting when we think about there has to be a warning so people can change and be ready. And what was the bottom line in Matthew 25? The ones that were ready went into the wedding and the door was shut. So you have a warning message. You get people to get ready as long as they have the vision to prepare for the coming of Christ and the wedding and the millennium. You know, this idea that prophecy is all negative, these are statements made by people that don't understand prophecy, and they must not have ever read many of the major prophets. You know, Isaiah has a very sobering message, but he's also called the Messianic prophet because he's got prophecies about the world blossoming like a rose. He's got prophecies about Christ's return. Uh, All of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, have this warning message that we've got to be we've got to be alert to what's happening if we want to prepare and enjoy the coming kingdom of God that Mr. Ames was talking about. Well, let's move on to another question. Uh, Mr. Weston, let me come back to you on this one as well. How is Bible prophecy relevant to us today? And I'll, I'll give you a second question to think about with that. There are those who would say that we don't need to worry about Bible prophecy because it's not a salvational issue. How might you respond to either that second part of the question, Bible prophecy is not salvational, or the the first part, how is it relevant to us today? I think it's relevant on multiple levels. Just as as one example, uh, we are given a warning of what is to happen to Israel, and we read there in Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, that someone is going to take that message. Ezekiel couldn't take it because he was, uh, the house of Israel had already gone into captivity. And it shows that those who know, those who know who Israel is, those who understand these things, if they don't warn uh, the nations of Israel, they're going to be held accountable. Now, some might say, but we're not Israel, and they have all kinds of different ideas like that. Uh, which they're wrong, but nevertheless, uh, what about Proverbs, the 24th chapter, uh, about verses 11 and 12? It says, if you see someone stumbling to the slaughter and do not hold them back from stumbling to the slaughter, that God is going to hold you accountable. And so we see a world that is stumbling to the slaughter. We see a world that is uh, headed in a very bad direction because of sin. And if we don't warn the world, then God is going to hold us accountable. Is it a salvation issue? Well, obviously, when I gave the example of the uh, ten virgins and those who were ready, why were they ready? Because they had the vision and the goal and purpose. And unless we understand that we have a responsibility, the Protestant world is uh, once saved, always saved. So if you're saved now, you don't have to prepare. We don't need prophecy because you're already saved. 
But the, the fact that we have a, a, a coming kingdom and with the fact that we have the end time prophecies that we are warning people to escape from, they have an opportunity to escape from those terrible times ahead. And that's why we're warning them, as, as Mr. Wesson was just quoting from Proverbs. So we realize, yes, it is a salvation issue. Uh, you're either going to be ready for the kingdom of God when Jesus Christ comes back, or you're not. You have the parable of the miners, the parable of the talents. And uh, what did he say? Well... There's a judgment time, and that judgment time is you are either going to be rewarded or you're going to be punished. So the, it is a salvation issue. Yeah, I, I think that uh, one that we all look at, we've been talking about for, for decades, is Philadelphia Laodicea. If we don't understand that these are prophetic of the future, that there are going to be people who are hanging on to the Word of God, there are other people who are going to be lukewarm. And those people are going to go through a tribulation. And uh, we, we don't have to start pointing fingers at where we think that might be because we have to take that as a personal warning. But that is a prophecy that at the very end of the age, the church as a whole is going to be in a lukewarm condition. And so that's a, that's a very important warning. I also think of Acts, the 20th chapter, I believe it's verse 27, where Paul said he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. We can't segregate this part of the message and then uh, prophecy over here in, in a corner. That's part of the whole counsel of God. And Paul did not uh, neglect to teach the whole counsel of God, which would have included prophecy. Yeah, that word counsel means the plan, the purpose. And, and gospel means good news. Exactly. There's a lot of good news. I mean, we talk about scriptures like uh, Isaiah, the second chapter, where it talks about how people are going to beat their swords into plowshares in the, in the future. That's wonderful news. I think that we all look forward to that time. It also mentions there that the law of God will go forth from Jerusalem. Yet people are told today, well, there's no law. It's all been done away with. And yet it's those laws that are going to bring peace to this world as people begin to live by the laws of God. And, and as he said there in uh, uh, Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, verse 29, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would keep his commandments and it would be well with them and their children always. God's law is for our good. That's a positive thing. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel to the world. This is part of our commission, a big part of the commission. How does our love and concern for the world relate to our responsibility in preaching the gospel? I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. I think that that's a, a very key question. Uh, there are those that just want to get the bride ready. Uh, that's the focus is just on the self. Preaching the gospel is going outward, is, is thinking about other people. And if the, the apostles back at that time had said, okay, we're just going to wait around till Christ comes back, we wouldn't be here today. And I'm so thankful that God called a man like Mr. Herbert Armstrong who uh, went out and, and preached to the world. And one of the things that I noticed when I came with the originally Global Church of God with Dr. Meredith was that it didn't take him very long and he wasn't just fishing in the pond of people who had already believed in the Sabbath and Holy Days. He was going out to the world. He was on the air on, uh, I think it was KAAY, out of uh, Little Rock, I believe it was, and uh, had a magazine going. And he was looking outward to preach to the world. And I think that's, that's caring for the world. 
And one of the critiques I heard a number of years ago was that some people felt that our job was to warn and walk away. Well, that was a very narrow view. Yes, we have to warn about what's coming because the direction the world is going today, there's going to be a consequence. There's going to, you can't thumb your nose at God. You can't defy the laws of God and expect nothing to happen because God is real. But he's also given us a very positive and very powerful message of a soon coming kingdom of God. And may that kingdom come soon when you look at what's happening today. Just to add one little comment, uh, one of the criticism of the past of warning and walk, walking away, the opposite is true, warning and welcoming. So we warn those and welcome those who respond to the warning message. You know, on the uh, ministerial conferences that we have uh, from time to time, I've been going out here to a number of them, and one of the, the lectures that I have on that is, is discipleship. When you read Matthew 28, at the end there, it actually says, make disciples of all nations. And so we're not here just to warn and walk away. We are here hoping that some of these people will respond. You know, I would dearly love my neighbors, all of my neighbors. We have the finest neighborhood I've ever been. I've talked about it a number of times. But I would dearly love to see them come along. I don't necessarily expect them to. I'm not going to go out and uh, shove our religion down their throats, but uh, they know that I'm on television, and Mr. Ames and, and others, and uh, we have a television program, and I hope that, in fact, I know one that actually has watched it. I hope maybe they'll be curious, and not just uh, my neighbors, but relatives. You hope that they, they might uh, come along. But that's God's doing, who he calls. But we have a responsibility to make disciples of all nations. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was to all men, uh, differently to the Jews and the Gentiles, that by all means he might save some. He was hoping that some would come along. And that is our, our desire, that, that uh, not just a, a few, but many would come along. You know, developing compassion for other people is something I think we need to think about here at the feast. I know when I first went to the feast, I read Deuteronomy 14, that uh, you take your tithe and you spend it for whatsoever your heart desires. And I think our concept in the past has been, well, go to the feast and learn how to live like a king. Eat the biggest steak you can find and, and the most expensive wine you can find and so on. But godly kings and godly queens, godly leaders are going to have a compassion for other people. They want to change circumstances that are hurting other people. Jesus Christ, before he died, you know, he mentioned he looked out over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you under my wings? He saw what was happening. And we can't just come to the feast and, and pretend we're going to be kings. We've got to be developing a mindset, a perspective, where we want to show the world the right way to live. Uh, the way to success, the purpose of human life. And it's more than just having a big stake. It's more than just living in the finest place I can find. It's preparing to serve mankind, serve human beings. And that's one of the lessons of the feast. I, I think that we have to sometimes separate the sin and the sinner. We, we talk about that. It's very easy to do that, to talk about it. But I think of the fact that we do talk against homosexuality, against transvestitism, against all these sins that our world is just descending into. And God prophesied that, uh, he said, you rulers of Sodom, you rulers of Gomorrah, referring to Israel at the end of the age. But Jesus also shows that uh, it, when uh, the judgment comes in the day of judgment, that 
those people come along faster than the self-righteous ones. And so when I say we need to separate, we need to recognize that we are not hating these people. We should never hate any individuals. We don't know the circumstances, why they became the way that they were. But we've got to love all mankind and recognize that any of these people have the potential to, to repent and to change. And we hope that they will for their own good. It just reminds me that preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness to the world is is much in a way like warning somebody before they walk off the edge of a cliff. If if somebody's heading toward a cliff, are you just going to sit back there and watch them, or are you going to reach out to them? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to take you back in time with this next question. Dr. Winnale, we'll start with you on this one. When did you first become aware of Bible prophecy? When you think back in your life, was there a, an event that happened? Was there a doctrine that, hap- that you came across or a, a, a prophetic, something of prophetic significance? What got your attention in regard to Bible prophecy? And maybe give us some specifics of what was going on in your life at that time. I'd be glad to. Uh, it was very personal. I was probably 23, 24 years of age. I just started graduate school, and uh, I was focused on becoming a doctor. I wanted to serve people, and I went to school down in Mississippi. My brother had been working with my uncle on a farm, and uh, my uncle would turn the radio on as he was doing the milking in the morning, and a whole series of religious programs would come on. My brother listened to and heard uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong talking about the world tomorrow and things like that. He had a chance to work in Germany for the summer and then went over to uh, London. We had a, um, an ambassador college there, and he was able to attend over there for a year. I came home to my parents' home in December of that year, and I picked up an ambassador college catalog, and I said, this is religious. I wonder what he's doing this for. Uh, we both came home the summer the next summer and we spent about two weeks together and I mentioned my brother I just bought a set of the great books and these are 20 30 books on philosophy and so on and my brother said what'd you buy that junk for now, he's my younger brother I said what do you mean junk he said uh, why don't you read this and he threw a booklet at me in 1975 in prophecy where Mr. Armstrong was writing about what's going to come in the future and I read it and I said what else do you have He threw another booklet at me on the United States and Britain in prophecy, which explains the prophecies that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how those prophecies have been fulfilled by America and Britain and other nations of the Western Western Europe. That was the first time I'd heard anything that made sense about Bible prophecy. And I asked him what else he had. So I read books on uh, really the, the proof of the Bible and the proof that God exists. And prophecy is one of the proofs that the Bible is inspired by a God who is able to say things and then bring it to pass. Uh, So I had never been exposed to that growing up in Protestant churches. It was always, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe. How do you know? Well, because I have this feeling in my heart. Mr. Armstrong kept saying, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, to prove all things, examine everything. Uh, to make sure that you know what you believe. And it was from then I started looking into Bible prophecy. I went back to school. Uh, I started going to the library every Saturday morning for about eight hours to check into this, check into that, prove this and prove that. And he finally got the phone number of a minister, and I called the minister, and I said, I'd like to come to church. 
He said, well, do you keep the Sabbath? I said, I go to the library every Saturday morning. He said, why don't you walk across the street to the YWCA? We meet on the second floor. <laughs> but from then on, I've been watching Bible prophecies. It's just incredible what people are not being told today. The prophecies that have been fulfilled historically, the prophecies that are coming true today, uh, this is just not talked about today. We had to ride buses to school, and there was a fellow on the bus that was talking about how the sun was going to turn dark and, and the moon into blood and all kinds of weird stuff. He was a very manipulative sort of fellow, and he somehow conned me into reading the book of Revelation unveiled at last, which was a, a booklet by Mr. Armstrong. And it was very prophetic in nature, of course, and uh, pretty scary in a lot of ways because I had never heard of anything like that before. And it just so happened, uh, coincidentally or not so coincidentally, I got very sick that night, uh, one of the sickest times of my life. I don't think it was fear of reading the booklet, but I think that it was just coincidentally. But it got my attention. And that was my introduction to the church. And many people over the years, we, we know, uh, become interested in what we're teaching because of Bible prophecy, whether it be American Britain of Prophecy or the Book of Revelation. But, of course, we have to go beyond that. We have to uh, learn uh, God gets our attention, but then we have to understand we've got to live this way of life. And so many people stick with Bible prophecy and arguing it and thinking that that's the most important thing. It's part of the whole big picture. But we come to understand that it isn't all just bad things, but it is a, a wonderful uh, thing to come, or as, as Mr. Uh, uh, Ames mentioned, not a bad, but uh, a warning. It's not just a warning, but it is something that's wonderful and great, and that's why we, we keep this feast, because it does picture a, a wonderful time in the future. Mr. Ames, what about your experiences? I was just getting out of the Army in uh, December 1959, and I was really depressed because all I could see on the scenes were nuclear war between the Soviet Union and the United States, and to me, there was just no hope for the future. And my way of coping was to get free literature. And I just happened to hear this radio address, Box 111, Pasadena Free Magazine. So I wrote for it and started getting the Plain Truth Magazine January 1960. I totally ignored it until the following fall when the local pastor of the Protestant church asked me to teach eighth grade Sunday school class. Their literature was very weak, to say the least. And I'm looking, where can I get some information to teach these children? Oh, the Plain Truth magazine had an article by Dr. Meredith, a series on the Ten Commandments. So I started teaching the Ten Commandments to the eighth grade Sunday school. And one thing led to another. And I had previously asked the pastor of the church to tell me about the book of Revelation. Oh, he, he gave me some unsatisfactory answer. So finally, when I got the booklet on the book of Revelation unveiled at last, and the key to the book of Revelation opened the all, all future to me and all understanding. I gave these literature to my local pastor. Oh, oh, he'll be excited about this. He'll be really interested in that. So finally, when I, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll read these if you read Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary on the book of Revelation. I postponed and procrastinated, but when I finally read it, 
the commentary was wrong because it said the first horseman of the apocalypse in Revelation 6 was Christ. Well, that was wrong. I didn't have to read the commentary anymore. I knew what Mr. Armstrong was saying, Matthew 24, interpreted in Revelation 6. So I got the booklets. I want to get my booklets back from the pastor, so I asked him, well, what do you think about this booklets on Revelation? You know, talking about World War III, the coming of Christ. He said, well, it's all very interesting, but it leaves out the poetry. Leaves out the poetry? Well, of course, what he was referring to was the symbolic language and the apocalyptic language as, as uh, commentators review it. He just didn't get the reality of what Christ was revealing. Like he says here in uh, Revelation uh, 1 and uh, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy of this book and keep these things which are in it for the time is near. And it says he gave this to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So instead of just being apocalyptic, poetic, symbolic language, it is reflecting the reality of the coming kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ. And that gave me hope for the future. The fact that because I never heard it growing up in the church, the Methodist church, and that was that Christ was coming back. I first heard that from Mr. Herbert Armstrong, realizing John 14, I will come again. And to me, that was fantastic news and gave me hope. I remember uh, when I first came into the truth, uh, I wanted to teach everybody. I wanted all my friends to, to understand these things. It was so easy to understand that I thought everybody could. And one of those individuals was my sister. And uh, she once said that she would never join this church because of me and because of this fellow that got me interested. But then the Cuban Missile Crisis came along. And that was a, a scary time for a lot of people. And she was worried that we would be in a war with Russia. And so she started asking me questions about it. And I was able to tell her that there's nothing in the Bible that uh, talks about a war between the United States and Russia that we didn't have to worry. Well, that was much more dangerous time than I even understood. Uh, I, you know, later on, I learned that uh, the, the Soviet Union had uh, uh, nuclear-tipped uh, torpedoes that were coming on submarines to this area. So, uh, uh, anyway, it was a very, very uh, dangerous time, and yet the Bible stood true. There was not going to be a, a war between Russia and the United States, and that was very comforting to her, and that's what uh, her introduction of the truth as well ask you a related question how do you think your understanding of Bible prophecy and, and your familiarity with it has impacted your life how would your life be I guess uh, another way to ask that is how would your life be different if you hadn't known it but how, how is your life how has it been changed do you think by your understanding of Bible prophecy I once thought at the very beginning that uh, heaven was going to be here on this earth in other words, the kingdom of God was just heaven on earth. So I transported the concept of heaven down here. And over a period of time, I came to realize that it's a totally different concept, heaven retirement. Uh, but with the understanding that we have that we're going to be kings and we're going to be rulers, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to fix a lot of the problems. In fact, the, the major problems that we deal with here on this earth, war and famine and, and so forth, 
uh, that is, is something we look forward to. And it's one thing to, to quote, be saved. It's another thing, and, and I'm using that in the term that they use in the world, but be saved for what? And the kingdom of God, uh, the future, what we're picturing here at the Feast of Tabernacles is just the beginning of the kingdom of God. It's uh, the, the world, the, uh, the God family ruling over uh, this earth at this time, but then it goes on for all of eternity. That's something to, to shoot for. That's something to desire. But I don't know of anybody that I grew up with who was very excited about going to heaven. Uh, that was just kind of a nebulous place that you wanted to go there because you just didn't want to go to the other place. <laughs> you know, as Mr. Ames mentioned that we read in, John, in uh, Matthew 6:33 about seeking first the kingdom of God. And we begin to seek that. Our, our total perspective changes. You know, a lot of people today have their bucket list. They want to do this. They want to do this. They want to do this. But that's all about self. It's all about self. If we're seeking first the kingdom of God, wanting to be in the kingdom of God, we're going to change our attitudes. We're going to change our behavior. We're going to change our perspectives. We're going to change how we live so that we can walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, develop his perspective. And I think what's sobering sometimes, in Matthew 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mentions there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But a lot of people today aren't interested in keeping the commandments, but they want, to, <laughs> they want the rewards without having to do what they have to do. They've been fed wrong information. They've been misled. They've been deceived. That we're not here to go to heaven. We're here to prepare for Christ to return to, to totally redo this earth. All right, well, let me switch gears a little bit here. Can you give us a sense of how much the world has changed in the last, think back, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? You mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis a few minutes ago, Mr. Weston. But in, in your view, gentlemen, in your lifetime, how have things changed and, and sped up prophetically in the last several decades? Mr. Ames? Well, there are many different events that have taken place, particularly the matter, as Mr. Wesson's bringing it on the telecast, will America be great again in showing the social trends and the matter of we are rejecting God's laws and his statutes and his judgments. But one of the things that really impressed me was 1996 or 94, the U.S. Congress passed a law called the Defense of Marriage Act, DIGDOMA. And here, the Congress had to say, marriage is between one man and one woman. You had to pass a legislation. It was a law in the United States. It was eventually overturned by the Supreme Court in 2013 or so. And now the Supreme Court of the U.S. says marriage, that's unconstitutional. Marriage is not between a man and a woman. What can you say is the most fundamental part of life? This God made man and woman in his own image to, to, to build families, the very foundation of, uh, of society and culture and the strength of nations. And to say that a marriage between a man and a woman and the, the law that was presented in the Defense of Marriage Act is unconstitutional. To me, that would just say, this is saying our country is really rejecting 
the fundamental laws of God. And that, to me, is, was one of the major turning points, as well as, of course, the social acceptance of transgender and same-sex marriage. Things have changed rapidly, uh, even in the last five years. I think that it's enough to cause our heads to spin. One of the things I noticed when I first came into the church back in uh, the, the middle 60s, early to middle 60s, I could not understand certain prophecies uh, in the way that we can today. It talks about rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as it was in the days of, of Noah or in the days of Lot. Uh, yes, we thought things were bad then, but we had no idea how bad they would, they would actually become. And when you, you look at the, the transformation of our society, I think that young people don't realize just how much it has changed. Society always changes, that's true, but it has changed in a very negative direction very, very rapidly. We could not understand how we could be persecuted for believing the truth. What are they going to say? Eat this piece of bacon or we're going to shoot you? Uh, but, but today, it's not a matter of whether they will, it's a matter of when. It's just a matter of time before we become uh, anathema to this world. Well, we already are, but I mean, on, on, we, we hit the radar screen and we're noticed. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, eastern part of the Midwest, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, back in the 60s, 50s and the 60s. At that time, these were the happy days. Everything was going wonderful. Uh, we lived in a smaller town, conservative. Everybody went to church on Sunday. Nobody was out doing things. Maybe one or two people would mow their grass on Sunday. But it was a very conservative area. We got in trouble at school if we used a bad word. That was the way things were at that time. What, is, what has really got to me was how much the world has changed. And it started probably in the 60s and into the 70s, then speeded up more recently. You know, Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians 2, about a falling away will occur before Christ returns. And we saw that happen in the Church of God. But we're seeing this happening in the Western world today, where countries that profess to believe in the Bible, profess to believe in God, have gotten involved with legal things. The Supreme Court banned prayers in school. And we didn't think that much about it because it didn't affect us that much. But this was in a country that professed to be one nation under God went to a graduation just the other night. And here were several thousand people uh, at the graduation, all pledged allegiance to one nation under God. Look at your coins. It talks about in God we trust, and yet we're turning our back on God. And this is basically the thrust of the prophecies. You know, Jeremiah talks about you have forgotten me. You've turned away from me, and there's going to be consequences. So we see this stuff happening, removing the Ten Commandments from public buildings in America, <laughs> yet you go to the Supreme Court and you've got uh, biblical themes there, legalizing abortion, which is basically killing children in the womb. All the way up to the ninth month. All the way up. Time of birth. Mm -hmm. So all these things happening, I think we've read where you know, coaches are fired because they prayed with their, their, their squad before or after a game where teachers are threatened to be fired because they had a Bible on their desk, and this is in America. Uh, this is all happening right in front of our eyes. I've got a book at home called The, Chris the Criminalization of Christianity. 
Now, these are professing Christians, but they can be thrown in jail for quoting the Bible. I read where a young Marine had to be a lady, her girl, that uh, she was court-martialed because she put a scripture on her her uh, workstation. But this is in a country that supposedly believes in God, supposedly follows biblical examples and, and principles, and yet this is what's happening here. As we think about major prophetic changes in the last several decades, we haven't talked yet about military and military capability. But if one of you could mention about, talk about that and how it relates to Bible prophecy as well, because we're, obviously we're fulfilling things in a way we never could. Well, you, you have uh, Christ's statement that it would get so bad that uh, no flesh could be saved alive. And we see that today. That was not possible until probably sometime in the 60s, maybe the 70s. The atomic bomb, of course, in 1945, but then the hydrogen bomb, and then where you had both Russia and the United States having those weapons and other nations. So that's, that's very obviously uh, something that is prophetic in nature. The fact that the, th- the two witnesses can be dead for, uh, was it three and a half days, I believe it is, uh, and yet, people all over the earth are going to celebrate their death. It indicates that the kind of technology that we have can pass the news around the world that quickly, and they'll be sending presents to one another. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Even the prophecies of war and battle, talking about the European power tormenting people for five months, what, what exactly is that? That's some sort of a, it seems to be a futuristic weapon. Uh, even when it talks about locusts coming out of the bottomless pit. We assume those are human armies, but we, we don't know. There's, there's so many things happening in our world today, robotics and everything. talks about people running and, and not uh, climbing over walls and, and this sort of thing. We, we assume that those are human beings, but they may have these exosuits where they... Uh, they have superhuman strength. There's a human being, but it's inside of a robot and protected. There, there's so many prophecies that we really can't even fully understand as yet because things are changing so rapidly. You know, Jesus said before he comes back, it's going to be a time of wars and rumors of wars. I think a lot of people thought whenever the Cold War ended that well, Russia and the United States are going to get along. Now we're going to have a peace dividend. And what we've got today is uh, other nations developing nuclear capabilities. You know, the Muslims believe if they can stir up a lot of things, the Mahdi will return. They're not oriented towards peace. They want to stir something up so that the Mahdi will return, their their Messiah. We've also got terrorist activities where it's not just militaries going after each other. We've got people that could put a nuclear device in a a suitcase and send it to somebody. Uh, So far, the terrorists have not used nuclear weapons, but there's no guarantee that they're not going to. Let me ask you another question. We've, we've addressed this a little bit so far, uh, but you may want to expand on it a little bit. What role do you feel that the church has in explaining a biblical understanding of prophecy to the world? Um, does the church have a role in, in taking prophecy to the world? But what kind of role do we have as a church, Dr. Winnell? We have the same role that the prophets had in the Old Testament. The same role that uh, Noah had in his day and age. 
We have to warn the world about what is coming, that you cannot go contrary to the laws of God. You can't defy God because there will be consequences. We have to get that message out. And at the same time, we have to talk about a very positive future. So you know, God provided a witness in Noah to that generation before the flood. He provided a series of prophets to Israel and Judah while they had a role to play. He's not going to leave this generation without a witness and without a warning. You know, we're also told in the New Testament, Peter is writing in 2 Peter 1.19, and I like the old King James version of that. It says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, Peter is writing to the church. I think sometimes we're self-conscious maybe in the church. The church of God has had a more sure word of prophecy. Billy Graham was not preaching about these things. Mr. Armstrong was. He was saying back in the 40s, Germany is going to come back and lead Europe. At that time, Germany had bombed into smithereens. It was, it, was, it was a smoking pile of rubble. And yet Germany has come back. Germany is leading Europe. Uh, we have a message to deliver. And I think God has given the church an understanding of prophecy so we could be a witness to this world. Because the world is not hearing what we have to say. They're not hearing about a coming kingdom of God. That Christ is going to return and set that kingdom up on this earth. So we do have, we have had a more sure word of prophecy. And I think partly too, what Mr. Armstrong came to understand was that the identity of America and Britain, nations of Western Europe, was really the key to understanding Bible prophecy. Now, some people say, well, that leaves out the Gentiles. But when Paul writes in Romans 9, 10, 11, he said the Gentiles are going to be added into like a branch. Uh, so this, this message is, is a big message. You know, I think it's, uh, it's important for our young people to understand some of these things. It is true that the church historically has kind of jumped the gun. He could go all the way back to the Apostle Paul. He thought that Christ would return in his day. Uh, Jesus' disciples and others thought that was going to be the case. They thought he would set up the kingdom then. And, and we've made the same mistake in our more modern times. I think we're getting a little smarter on that uh, to not set dates. But I think it's important that our young people recognize how accurate the, the overall picture is that we have been preaching, that, that God used Mr. Armstrong to give to us. Mr. Armstrong said very powerfully that Germany would rise again, that Germany would reunite. And I remember Daniel Shore, I believe, was the, uh, the commentator. Uh, when the Berlin Wall came tumbling down, he was interviewing a couple experts, one German and one was an American expert on uh, Germany. And he asked when they would be reunited, how long it would take for the two Germanys to reunite. And the one individual said that, well, it wouldn't be a full reunification. It would be some sort of an accommodation over a period of time. And the other one said that they would reunite within a year. He was shocked by that statement. And yet Germany did reunite completely within a year, less than a year. And I think that that was startling because we were saying that, uh, not necessarily how quickly they would reunite, but the Berlin Wall would come down, that these nations would come out of Eastern Europe, and uh, that, that Germany would, would be a, 
a single nation once again. So there are many things that we have taught that are absolutely correct. God has opened our minds to the panorama of prophecy in a way that nobody else has. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> Revelation 19.10 talks about how the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. How do you think that applies to this conversation? One of the things that I think about, if you look at the book of Revelation, if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll find that the, the greatest portion of the, uh, the book of Revelation that are the words of Christ are Revelation 2 and 3 about the heirs or the seven churches. And I think it's a, a testimony to the fact that if they are prophetic in nature, if his words are prophetic, then we should look to Revelation 2 and 3 as also being prophetic. William Ramsey in his book says that John added these letters because the New Testament was all about letters, the Apostle Paul's letters and, and so forth, and the uh, James, Peter, and John, and, and Jude. And so it was an afterthought. But in reality, those words in Revelation 2 and 3 are prophetic in nature. And those who neglect that understanding that those seven churches are seven different eras uh, do so to their own peril. The word prophecy sometimes can mean inspired speaking, not just the predictive element. But in this case, in, in Revelation, the quote you're quoting is in the context of the coming of Christ. Revelation 19, is Christ coming back to the earth? And the whole book of Revelation is prophetic in the sense of predictive elements that are coming in the future. And those seven eras that you talked about, that again was quite a revelation whenever I came into the church to realize you can look at church history and match up eras of the church historically with what uh, John is talking about there. And it's sobering as we get to the end of the age, the age is going to be a Laodicean era when people are pretty well self-sufficient and they're not worried about this or that. Uh, they're focused on themselves. Whereas the Philadelphia era, which we believe that we still represent, is going to be focused on doing a work, has a job to do, and there's going to be a reward for that. Even William Ramsey, who wrote uh, the book on the Letters of the Seven Churches in the early part of the last century, speaks of Philadelphia as the uh, missionary city. Uh, the one that would go out and preach the gospel in a way that the others didn't. All of them do preach the gospel to some degree, but Philadelphia was the one that was noted for that, uh, carrying the gospel to the, the nations around them. Whereas Laodicea, he titles the city of compromise. And uh, I think that as we get toward the end, uh, again, that's, a, that's a, a stern warning for all of us not to, to begin to compromise with this world but to be zealous to do the will of God. You know, even within the churches of God that exist today, there's this tendency among some to not want to talk about prophecy because they say, well, it attracts the wrong kind of people. And yet uh, we've been commissioned to preach the gospel very powerfully. We can't back away from these things. It attracted you and me and you. Uh, three of the four of us, it, it certainly attracted, so I guess we're the wrong kind of people. I want to come back to why we're here at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this is 
a high number of feasts that each of you have attended at this point in your life. Uh, you may or may not recall how many. Mr. Ames, I'm sure you know exactly how many. But I want you to think about what originally turned you on to the Feast of Tabernacles and, and the prophecies that relate to that. I'd like you to share with us, please, if you would, some of your favorite Feast of Tabernacles related millennial prophecies that come out of the Scripture. Well, of course, the millennium starts off with a period of transition. I've given a sermon on establishing the kingdom. Uh, when Christ comes back, uh, he has to put all enemies under his feet. So there's a transition period. You have Ezekiel uh, 38, 39, uh, Magog and Magog. After some time, they see Christ has got peace in Jerusalem and Gog and Magog, some of the remnant from World War III actually come and attack Jerusalem. This is in the millennium. And we find out Egypt and uh, does most likely will not keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's a period of time uh, where Christ is establishing the kingdom and he's establishing the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, and the second exodus takes place, Isaiah the 11th chapter and so forth, where all the captives are still in a process of coming back to the Holy Land, and God sends angels or people like, like fishermen out to get these strange strangers and bring them back to, to the Holy Land. So there is that period of time uh, that is a transition. And to me, that's a very important element to the beginning of the millennium. But most importantly, of course, is what we read in Zechariah 14, that all nations are going to go up to Jerusalem and be re-educated. And, of course, it will take Egypt a couple of years, perhaps, for them to learn that lesson. We've been focused uh, a great deal on the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is obviously for, for obvious reasons. But we should not forget the last great day. And I think that one of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, and about the dry bones. And uh, when they come up out of their grave, says, Then you shall know that I am the Eternal, when I have opened your graves, O my people. And you, you talk about good news, to know that our family members, because I think that many of us have family members who never understood this, who didn't comprehend it, but uh, to know that they're going to have their opportunity. You know, my parents were, were uh, you know, just ordinary people. They weren't out here uh, trying to do a lot of wrong things. They were just trying to live in a, a normal way. But they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. Uh, I remember when I was listening to Mr. Armstrong uh, at, at home, I'd have my finger on the dial, not the volume, because I had it turned all the way down where I could barely hear it. That's when I still had some decent ears. And I'd have my finger on the other dial so that if my parents happened to walk in my room, which we had wall-to-wall carpeting on, on uh, slab concrete, uh, you couldn't hear them coming. I could just turn the station just a little bit so those off and they wouldn't hear it. They didn't understand. God hadn't called them at that time, and yet they're going to know. And then I think about my Uncle George. I've talked about him in a number of sermons, who is an atheist. And I'm going to look forward to that time, if God will allow me, to deal with my Uncle George. And somehow I think that when he sees the truth, uh, he's going to eat a lot of crow and uh, hopefully come along. 
I think some of my favorite scriptures relative to the millennium are Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 2, where it says the nations are going to beat their swords into plowshares. Uh, in Isaiah 35, it talks about the lame are going to be healed and uh, the sick are going to be healed and the earth is going to blossom like a rose. To see a beautiful earth where people can live and enjoy compared to how they live today, it's an exciting future. I'm going to dig a little bit further with this question. When you imagine your, yourself in the kingdom of God, in your new role as a full member of the family of God, what do you look forward to doing? Where will you start? I'd like to rebuild cities. I'd like to rebuild cities that will be enjoyable to live in, that are not polluted, They've got uh, opportunities for wildlife and human beings to be close together where you can see sunsets and not uh, light pollution. (laughs) We're going to be kings and priests and judges. And priests, of course, are teachers. And I think of the time uh, where he talks us in Isaiah uh, that you shall see your teachers and you will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. And I picture myself as being one of those teachers who say, here's the way, walk in this way. And uh, be a delight to re-educate the whole world in the truth. And as Mr. Armstrong used to say, they might have unlearning schools because unlearning something is much more difficult than learning truth for the first time. So maybe we'll have unlearning schools, uh, but nonetheless... Uh, they will not hurt nor destroy, and it, Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. So truth will go out to the whole world. We live in a, what is called a, a hookup generation, where young people and not so young don't even bother to get married. They just have these one-night stands, one after another. Having been a field minister for so many years, and seeing how so many people have wrecked their lives at an early age or at least damaged their lives and scarred themselves. I look forward to the time when young people will grow up in a family that is an intact family where it's not a result of divorce and and breaking up and that sort of thing. And they'll grow up and they'll learn God's way of life and they'll avoid the heartache and the suffering that so many people have today. Our job will be to to say, this is the way, walk you in it. And I think that young people, to be able to come together uh, and and be married where the families are a part of it, and to then have their children and, and, you know, go on generation after generation, what a beautiful thing that is that God has designed in the family to picture his very family. So that's one thing I look forward to. Well, we we actually come down to a final question for you. We've spent the last period of time talking about the importance of Bible prophecy, how it relates to us, how it relates to the kingdom of God. I'd like to ask you, what is a final piece of advice or encouragement that you would like to pass on to God's people today regarding understanding where we are in Bible prophecy and perhaps how to make it more personal in our own lives? I would certainly advise our brethren to fulfill their commitment, the commitment we made at baptism, which, of course, we want to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we love Christ more than we love any human being, even our own self, and to realize that we have a mission, that the way we grow and prepare the bride for the wedding is to do the work of God. 
And as both Dr. Meredith and Mr. Armstrong have pointed out over the years, those who have grown the most spiritually are those who've had their heart in the work. And of course, Dr. Meredith gave us this sevenfold commission of the work. And the first one, preach the gospel of the kingdom in the true name of Jesus Christ. Two, preach the end time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelites people. Three, feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can. And then the uh, last four one as well. So, as I mentioned earlier, when you look at the Bible and you realize the last thing that Jesus said was, I am coming quickly. And John's response was, so come, Lord Jesus. And I hope that that is the attitude for all of us. Mr. Armstrong said at one time, the greatest event in all history is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, maybe his sacrifice was the greatest event in all history, but at least that was Mr. Armstrong's perspective on it. And Dr. Meredith has said, keep the big picture in mind. And if we have our hearts in God's work, as John 4:34, my meat, my food, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We need to look to the second coming of Christ and to make sure that we're so doing, as Dr. Winnell mentioned earlier in uh, Matthew 26 and verse 10, uh, that blessed are those who are so doing when Christ returns. Yeah, many of the adults who are listening to our uh, talk here at the feast will probably remember we went through a period of time where critics were ridiculing anybody that had an interest in prophecy and saying that you're suffering from prediction addiction. But that was coming from individuals who had lost sight of the big picture that Mr. Ames just talked about. What we need to do is go back to the scriptures. And Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, he says, do not despise prophesying. Don't despise it. Don't put it down. Yet this comment about prediction addiction was really a put down on anybody that had an interest in prophecy. Jesus also mentioned in Matthew 24 to watch and be ready. You've got to have something to watch. Christ is coming back, as we've been talking about. He's going to set up the kingdom on this earth, but we've got to be ready. We've got to be building the character that's going to be useful at that time. So I would encourage all of our brethren to study Bible prophecy, to watch. We have to know what to watch for. To, As ministers, we need to preach about it because we've been given an understanding of prophecy. The world has not been given. So we need to do those things and show how end-time events are fitting into these Bible prophecies so that we can be ready. We've got to be able to function as watchmen. Watchmen warn, but they also talk about good news that's coming. So we've got a double job to do. But uh, being here at the feast gives us an opportunity to focus on the positive aspects of the uh, coming kingdom of God in the last great day that Mr. Weston was talking about, which is the real hope for all of mankind. Age does have its advantages. We can look back over a, a panorama of a period of time and, and we can see how the world has changed. We can also see those who have lived the way of life that God says don't live and says these are the, going to be the, the consequences of it. You have Leviticus 26, uh, Deuteronomy 28 that talk about the consequences of obedience and of disobedience. And I think that it's helpful 
to, to have enough years behind us, and that's something we can't, I mean, we just have to live it. But to be able to look back over a period of time and see that God's way is the good way. It is the right way. It is a profitable way. We know that some very difficult times are coming in the future, and we don't know what that is going to bring for any one of us. But the one thing that I think I can take away from my life is that if we obey God, if we follow what He says to do, it's going to work out in the end. And God loves us, and He's not going to let us go through anything in the future that will be bad for us. Uh, it's going to be good in the long run. He has a purpose in the lives of each one of us. And I think that rather than trying to, in every case, work out every last detail of our lives, we just need to let God be in charge of our lives and uh, take us where he's going to because we know we have a great and a wonderful future. And that's what we've been talking about here today is the future. And so much of it we've talked about is not the, the warning so much. We've talked about that a little bit. But just naturally, it's come out all the wonderful prophecies that God has given to us and how the feasts portray those, those wonderful things. So uh, I would just advise our, our members to, to really look to, to God and to his promises that he's made and the future that he holds out for us. And the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the, the glory that he's going to reveal in and through us. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your perspectives. We're rejoicing at the feast together. The Feast of Tabernacles is a prophetic holy day, and we are living a foretaste of fulfilled prophecy while we are here. Prophecy is not something to be avoided or shunned or feared. Rather, prophecy gives us an understanding of where we are today, what our mission should be, and what we have to look forward to. Watching for fulfilled prophecy also reminds us to stay alert, to avoid falling asleep spiritually, and to keep our intense focus on overcoming and preparing for God's soon coming kingdom. I want to thank our evangelists for giving us these vital prophetic perspectives and personal insights today in this year's Feast Film. And thank you, all of you. We sincerely hope that you have a fantastic remainder of the feast, and may the prophesied fulfillment of this feast come very soon. Very good. Okay. Very good. You gotta go. Thank you, all of you. Can I have my boots? Can I have my boots? I think we need some outtakes. I think. What was that one you wanted to cut out?